the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, <laughs> what the hell is going on now? We're talking about deaths of despair. Oh, that's so, cheerful. Well, you're right. It's not cheerful, Danny. I mean, look, we, we are now in experiencing the worst economic devastation since the Great Depression. We have more than 33 million Americans in six weeks have gone on unemployment. And the brunt of that damage is not being borne by the elites who work in the information economy and who can telework and do everything by Zoom. It's being borne by those at the middle and the bottom of the economic ladder for what Trump called the forgotten Americans, people who were finally doing better under him for a while. And now all of a sudden that progress has been wiped out. So the phrase deaths of despair that we're using comes from this new book out by Anne Case and Angus Deaton, two economists from Princeton University. And it was actually Dr. Case who coined this term deaths of despair in talking about people who've really lost all hope. You know, I think that our image of the depression is one where, you know, we see people walking across the Dust Bowl with all their family belongings on the back of a cart and their ragged children, you know, the iconic photos of this. And we tend not to think of the modern age that way because people aren't on their carts. They're not, you know, out walking the streets. But at the same time, even before COVID, even before the lockdown, there were these ghost towns where there once was a plant and mm -hmm. now there isn't one, where people once had jobs and communities and there isn't one anymore. And these people, as has been, I think, very well documented, are dying younger and younger of disease, of drug addiction, of alcoholism, of all of these byproducts, and of course of suicide. And these are all these deaths of despair. And so we have this pre-existing epidemic because it really had reached epidemic proportions where the number of people, what economists call excess deaths due to these deaths of despair, people you know, either committing suicide or slowly committing suicide through opioids, through drugs, through liver disease and other, other ailments that come from that. And now we've overlaid this new epidemic on top of it and overlaid on top of that a government-mandated recession where we have told these people, you can't work, you can't support your family, you can't have the dignity of work anymore because for the sake of everybody else, you have to stay home. And this could fuel deaths of despair if it goes too long. I think it's already gone on too long. And, you know, you and I have talked about, in a rare moment of beautiful harmony, you and I have talked about the fact that there's so much derision in the public square for people who are out protesting yeah. against this. And, you know, I'm totally Look at those willing. people. They're, uh, they're not social those, distancing. They're not wearing their masks. Those bumpkins. You know, those bumpkins, exactly. And I'm perfectly willing to believe that there are those among them who, you know, are conspiracy theorists and those among them who are wrong. On the other hand, there are plenty, I'm sure the majority among them, who need the work. And this is the thing, you know, AEI has, I think, done amazing work in this space. You know, our own current president, Robert Doerr, but our previous president, also Arthur Brooks, on the dignity of work. Yes and how poverty doesn't need to be a, a trap for people. 
people who don't work and who are getting that 600 bucks extra, guess what? That's not changing your life. No. That's not doing things, and they want to work. No, that's exactly right, and this is something that Arthur wrote a lot about, is that just having more social welfare doesn't solve the problem because that $600 of extra of unemployment, yeah, you need it in order to get through the lockdown, but it's not giving you that happiness and the satisfaction of serving your family, serving your community, doing meaningful work, you know, what Arthur called earned success. Slowly over a long period of time, we've been robbing whole community of Americans of earned success. And now this pandemic and sort of the lockdown Nazis, you know, who say we have to stay closed until there's a vaccine practically. Well, that's a California position. It's like they are robbing people of earned success. And I think this is going to uh, have a political ramification because what you're seeing is already before the last election, when Donald Trump was elected, there was a whole community of Americans who felt that political parties on both sides were not listening to them and they elected Donald Trump. And now you've gotten these lines drawn where these Americans are basically being pushed by the elites out of their jobs and say, you can't work. And if you want to go back to work and if you want to open uh, open the store where you worked in and you want to start serving customers, you're actually endangering all of us. And it's just all, it, all of us fancy people who all of us we fancy were out, people who wish we were we, out being served you know, by you. Yeah, we'll just order in. You know, well, good for you. I'm glad you have money to order in. Lots of people don't have money to put food on their tables. No, and I think that again, not only do people who are living by the sweat of their brow in whatever of these walks of life deserve respect, not contempt, and deserve consideration. And I'm really happy to see that there are governors who don't have, you know, the unbelievable self regard of our friend in in the Michigan governor's seat. You mean our next vice president? Oh God! Um, <laughs> and actually, and actually, want to consider this? Yeah. You know, actually, are thinking about it because it's not just Republican governors who are considering this. I think that there are plenty of Democratic governors who recognize that we've passed a tipping point and that the moment has come when, in fact, we need to care about the damage that is being inflicted, not by the disease but by the lockdown. We can be smart, but we don't have to be totalitarian in our treatment of this disease. Look, there are all sorts of costs, especially in these vulnerable communities, to the lockdown. You have people who are not getting cancer treatment. I think 18% decrease in uh, the number of people going in for chemotherapy. You have people who are not getting their high blood pressure treated. They're not getting their substance abuse treated. All these people are in medically vulnerable and economically vulnerable communities. And here's the thing, Danny. We just had Avik Roy on the podcast talking about how hard it is to develop a vaccine, how hard it is to even develop an effective treatment. What if we don't get a vaccine anytime soon? What if we don't get, you know, a really good treatment? Are these people supposed to stay out of work indefinitely? Apparently. Yeah. Apparently they are. I think there are people... Look, the governor of California just shut down the University of California system for the fall. It's insane. That's how I feel. Now, again, that's affecting, but you know, there are. That's affecting the elites. But uh, but but... no, it's not just affecting, you know, I'm sorry. It's janitors, it's food workers, it's the, you know, people who maintain the buildings. It's this entire community of people. And I know because I see this at Georgetown where I teach, they're getting furloughed. Not because the people at Georgetown are mean or cheap or rotten, but because they don't have the money coming in and so they can't spend it. You know, all of this has ripple effects on people that I think that these absolutists can't appreciate. And I have very little doubt that this concept of deaths of despair, that the despairometer, if you want to call it that, is going to go up in the coming months. The question for me, and this is for you, 
is what's that going to mean for Donald Trump? Oh, well, that's an interesting topic. I mean, I think it's going to fuel populism. We're seeing like never before a division between the elites and the working class in this country. I think you're going to see a lot of working class Americans who said, you know, you didn't listen to me before Donald Trump was elected when I said to you, my factory in my town is closed and you've been shipping my jobs to China and I can't get a job and I can't feed my family. And then I sent Donald Trump to the White House and now you're telling me that I can't work again. And when I tell you that I'm suffering, you're not listening. You're mocking me for it. I mean, I think there's a palpable feeling in this in a large sector of the country the people in New York City and in uh, and in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Washington D.C. don't get what's happening in Arkansas and Kentucky and Mississippi and West Virginia and Michigan and Ohio in these communities of despair. Well, let's talk to somebody who is an expert on deaths of despair. Sarangas Deaton, who with Dr. Ann Case is the author of the book that we have been discussing, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism is a senior scholar and the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. He's also Emeritus in the Economics Department. He's the 2015 Nobel Prize winner in economics. Our first Nobel Prize winner on the podcast. No, Mark's still waiting for his (laughs) Nobel Prize, people. Anyway, it's a complete delight to have him on, and we hope that not only will you buy the book, but you'll enjoy the discussion. Well, Sir Angus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. So even before the coronavirus struck, we had an epidemic going on in this country of uh, deaths of despair. You've noted that in 2018, there were 158,000 deaths of despair, which is double the amount of COVID deaths we've had so far. Could you first start by explaining to our audience what are deaths of despair and tell us about this epidemic? That's a good place to start. So Deaths of Despair was actually a term invented by Anne somewhere after we wrote the first paper to describe the leading causes of death that we'd been finding, which was this big increase in three causes of death, suicides, alcoholic liver disease, and overdoses, drug overdoses. So these three causes together, we just christened Deaths of Despair, and the term was to sort of pick up the idea somehow that these are all a bit like suicide and like suicide themselves. So they're brought by, by your own hand. And there's a feeling that in order to die from any one of these three things, you must be in despair. And so that's sort of where the term came from. It was not any technical link to any finite measure of despair. And as you said, there were 158,000 of those in 2018, which is the last year we have data for. And in what you might call normal times, if you go back to the mid-90s before this epidemic started, there were about 60,000 a year. So this is like 100,000 extra deaths of despair that we got no business seeing. Mark mentioned this 158,000 sort of excess or deaths of despair. You used a phrase that I thought was something that people can really identify with, which is the equivalent of three fully loaded Boeing 737 MAX jets falling out of the sky every day for a year. You know, when you think about it that way, it becomes all the more horrifying. Talk a little bit about where you think this has come from. Why are so many dying of despair? You know, in cases my book, Deaths of Despair in the Future of Capitalism, is sort of about that. 
So it's good to think about the other things that go with that. So that one of the things we discovered very early on was that this rise in deaths of despair was among people without a four-year BA. There's a little bit among people with a BA, but it's almost exclusively among people without a four-year BA. So that's your first clue. The second clue is that bad things are happening to people without a BA in lots and lots of other ways. So for instance, their pain levels are rising, their depression levels are rising, loneliness is rising, they have increasing numbers of people who have difficulty socializing or difficulty working. Their marriage rate has continued to drop. That doesn't mean that they're not living together and having children. So there's been a soaring increase in the number of children born out of wedlock. So people are not going to church anymore. They don't belong to unions anymore, which were a very important part of the social fabric. You know, in Bob Putnam's Bowling Alone, the guy who was Bowling Alone was bowling in a union hall. So what we think is behind this is a slow disintegration over half a century or so of the life that supported work and family and religion and everything else for people without a four-year BA. We valorized the BA, so you've got this educated elite, which is only a third of the population, and the other two-thirds are suffering in these awful ways. So it's interesting because the COVID epidemic or pandemic is hitting this group particularly hard because the BA crowd, educated third, most or many of them can telework and they're in the information economy, whereas the people who you describe and who you're talking about who are suffering these deaths of despair are the ones who are working manual labor jobs that you can't do over the internet. You can't do it on Zoom. Talk about a little bit about how this community is being impacted by the COVID pandemic. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's not a perfect match, but it's a pretty good match. So, you know, these educated elite that I talked about are all Zooming and talking to each other. And what's more is we're not taking any risks because we only go out rarely, we wear masks, and we're still being paid. Whereas the people without the BAs are the people who are manning the grocery stores or womaning the grocery stores, you know, who are driving the buses. And a lot of them are working in hospitals, for instance, so they're on the front line of the healthcare crisis. The other part, of course, is that they're not just risking their lives. The ones that are in inessential services, like waiters, you know, like a lot of retail, people who work in retail, non-essential retail, have also lost their livelihoods or have risk of losing their livelihoods. So, so far, the state has done a pretty good job of trying to compensate these people and make sure, you know, they don't run out of money. The COVID is sort of made it worse for these groups. Not that we think, you know, deaths of despair is something that happened over a very long time. They, they don't respond quickly to unemployment. So we're not expecting a huge increase in deaths of despair. But life has gotten worse for the same people that we talk about in the book. As you've pointed out, the despair, it's not just a financial issue. There's dignity in work, right? And so when you're pushed out of your job, you're not just losing the paycheck that can be made up by government welfare or by government support. You're losing the dignity of work and your purpose in the community and your purpose in life. Doesn't that have an impact on despair? Yeah, absolutely. You summarized it as well or better than I could. Um, you know, we don't think the thing that's causing people to kill themselves or to be susceptible to being pressured to take opioids or pain rising is because 
you know, their wages went down or even that they lost their job. It's because this whole dignity of work is lost. The community is disintegrating around them. You know, the wages and the jobs are the fuel, if you like, or the foundation, if you like, for that sort of working life for people without a four-year degree. And that is going away. And then the knock-on effects are what's really troubling people. I mean, one story we told at the beginning, and I think it's still a very powerful one, is if you think of some guy in his 50s, you know, he may have had two or three kids, but none of them live with him because he had them with different women and they're all living with different men and other partnerships. And you get into your 50s and, you know, your midlife, you're beginning to see that your life doesn't last forever and you're completely denied this family life, which is such a source of strength for all of us. You have a marvelous sentence, you know, destroy work and in the end working class life cannot survive, right? It is sort of integral to that life. And when you take out the additional things you're talking about, family, community, religion, people begin to lose the anchor just as cities have lost their anchors. Why, though, do you think this is affecting whites or non-Hispanic whites so much more? Well, we tell that story in the book, and actually, we think it happened to blacks first. (laughs) And so it's not like the whites are on the front line. It's just the system is slowly shedding the least educated. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when the first wave of globalization hit and the inner city factories and manufacturing declined, you got this crisis in the black community, you know, which Moynihan wrote about, which, you know, there's an extensive literature on. And it looks in many, it's not identical, but in many respects, it's what's happening to less educated whites today. So it's sort of like the other shoe dropping. It's not that blacks are exempt from this. It's that they got it first. And now it's moving up from the least skilled, who were the blacks, many of whom had migrated from the South, were not very, many of them not very well educated, and moved up to people, you know, with a high school degree. Okay, now, one thing that is confusing to me, and here's where you're going to hear me, having been educated by our scholar colleague, Nick Eberstadt, is this doesn't affect Hispanics in the same way that it affects blacks and it affects whites, even at similar income levels. So if you look at New York and you look at other places, you really don't see this sort of communities of despair. Do you have a theory about why that might be? Well, we spend some time thinking about that. First of all, I think it's a mistake to think of Hispanics in the same way you think of non-Hispanic whites and non-Hispanic blacks. They come from all sorts of different places, and it's not a single group by any manner of means. You know, Mexicans are different from people who came from Spain or different from people who came from Argentina or Guatemala or Cuba. And, you know, most scholars who write about Hispanics separate out these groups pretty carefully. And what's more is there are lots of puzzles about them. I mean, you know, they're much worse off than whites. They have longer life expectancy than whites. Right. Many of them are actually immigrants or they're first or second generation immigrants. So it's just a very different sort of community and a very heterogeneous community, which, you know, we spent some time thinking about following that up. And it just, you can't really get a handle on it and didn't seem useful. We had similar problems with American Indians and Alaskan Natives, which is just impossible to tell what's happening. 
So one of the things you've mentioned, which is really interesting, is that despite the fact that we might see an increase in suicide and, and deaths of despair, mortality during the pandemic is actually probably going to decrease. Explain that. Well, probably is a bit stronger than I would make it. You know, the recession that's being induced now is different from any other recession that we've ever seen in history. So everybody wants to look and, you know, make predictions, but I think that's really very hard. So having said that, you can look at other recessions. And, you know, even during the Great Depression in the U.S., life expectancy went up and was at actually a local high in the worst years of the Great Depression. And similar evidence has come from many other countries around the world, many other recessions. You know, Spain, which was terribly badly hit by the Great Recession with something like 40% unemployed at some point, life expectancy rose quite rapidly all through that period. So you might think that's weird. How could that possibly happen? And it's true that suicides tend to go up in recessions, but remember, two suicides are only 2% of all deaths. And there's a lot of other deaths that there are, many of which don't go up during a recession or actually go down during a recession. So just think of the last two months. Think of the reduction in road traffic, for instance. Yeah. A lot of road traffic accidents, a lot of accidents on building sites. Construction hasn't stopped, but a lot of it's slowed down. So, you know, the people that used to fill the hospitals in New York were, in many cases, accident victims, and there have been very few of them over the last two months. You also talk about the uh, phenomenon of what you call harvesting. Can you explain that a little bit? Because we've heard a lot about how, okay, so we've got something like 80,000 COVID deaths right now. Many of those, you would suggest, would have happened anyway. They just happened sooner. Right. Well, first of all, let me disown any ownership in the term harvesting, okay. the standard term among demographers. Right. So wait, what tends to happen is if you have a lot of very frail elderly people and something bad like this comes along, then their mortality, their death gets advanced compared with where it would otherwise be. So, you know, instead of dying in May next year, they die in May this year or something of the sort. And that's sort of what's called harvesting. And, and it has the effect that just as mortality goes up this year, then if it has the effect of, you know, a lot of people who were close to death anyway dying, then those people are not available to die again next year. So that's what they call harvesting. You've picked the fruit, and so next year the fruit is not there. You know, when the deadly reaper comes back next year, there's nothing in the fields for the deadly reaper to reap. So, you know, we spend sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars getting a drug that'll get a cancer victim to live for another few months. So, you know, harvesting people is not a good idea. No, no, that's you know, very fair. It really does hurt people. And, you know, the tragedies in the state where I live in New Jersey, half of the people who died are in elder care nursing homes. And one has to remember that these are people and people who have lived longer and who don't get that and their relatives don't get it. And, you know, life years have been taken away from them. And we all die in the end. Well, that's true. I, neither Mark nor I can argue with that. You brought up Spain, but I wanted to ask you about the UK, because there's a, a not dissimilar phenomenon of deaths of despair happening there, according to just some of the reading I was doing. Is there a parallel? Well, that's something they worry about a lot. And whenever I go there, I'm peppered with that question. 
you do see an increase in deaths of despair in Britain. And you know, if you plot it, it looks pretty bad, rising over time. But then if you put it on the same graph as the US, you say, well, that's really very small. One place where it's not very small is Scotland, where I grew up. And there's a very large number of drug deaths there, the sort of train spotting phenomenon, if you like. And what accounts um, for that? So there's a worry. Well, you know, one of the things that gives one cause to worry in Britain is that there's been a very long period of median wage stagnation in Britain, now about 15 years, which is historically unprecedented. Now, there's nothing like you see in the U.S., and so, you know, that would tell a story, which is these less educated people here have done very badly for close on 70 years now. In Britain, it's only 15 years, but you've got it coming, sort of. And so that's the story you can tell, and it's obviously a worrisome story for them. They don't have some of the things that we have here, though, which make it much worse here. Well, what I was going to ask you, though, is obviously one of the big things that you and Dr. Case focus on is this question of the American health system and health care. And of course, in the UK, they have the National Health Service. If you pinpoint that as a major driver of some of these problems, why is there a differential when, in fact, they have the national health in Scotland as they do in England? Well, it's important. We say a major driver. We don't say the major driver. So we're not denying the problems that globalization and automation have caused for less educated workers in America. Um, those are real and less educated workers all around the rich world are facing those. The reason we focus on healthcare and its extraordinary financial burden on people is because it's a self-inflicted wound. You know, I believe in globalization. I believe in technical change. Those are the roots of our future prosperity. That is what's brought us prosperity in the past. And they'll bring us prosperity in the future if we let them. But this healthcare system, this enormously strangling beast, I mean, we call it a cancer. Um, Warren Buffett called it a tapeworm on society. It's just sucking the blood. I mean, it's taking a wrecking ball to the labor market. It's the only, not the only thing that's taking a wrecking ball to the labor market. But this is something we're doing to ourselves. We don't have to do this. So let's talk a little bit about globalization because, I mean, here at AEI, we're supporters of free trade and all the rest. But, you know, one of the things that free traders, a mistake free traders make when they talk about the free trade system is, okay, we got a trade deal. There's no net job loss. Right. And the reason there's no net job loss is because, yeah, a bunch of manufacturing jobs are lost, but then we bring in these higher paying information age jobs that are better. So we're actually doing better. Well, if you're living in Lordstown, Ohio, there's a net job loss. If you're living in these right. communities of despair, there's a net job loss. And it seems to be similar with the pandemic where we might have a you know, a reduction in mortality overall because people aren't dying on the highways and people aren't having workplace accidents and because of the harvesting and all that. Right? But there's this community of people who are absolutely getting devastated by the lockdown. And uh, is that a fair analogy? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what you say about globalization, too, it's transfer use. You put it in terms of place, Lordstown. But you could also put it in terms of education. I mean, these people who don't have a four-year degree, you know, are the people whose jobs are going away. And the people who have the four-year degree and are the people who are benefiting from globalization and getting all these new jobs. So it's not, again, a perfect match, but it certainly works that way. And I'm worried that post-COVID, there's going to be more of this. 
tele-everything, e-everything, is going to be advanced more rapidly than it would be otherwise. And that's good for educated people who can write that code, who can sit behind their screens, who are computer literate. And it's good for you know, retailers that sell at a distance like Amazon and Walmart. Um, it's not so good for the other ones where a lot of these people work. Well, let's talk a little bit about how globalization is going to be impacted by COVID and what impact it's going to have on this community. Because on one hand, you've pointed out that there's going to be a pullback from globalization because of national security that we, we right. found we're too dependent on China for uh, for a lot of our supply chains and for critical equipment. And there's going to be a drive to bring back some of that manufacturing here to the U.S. But at the same time, you've got these trends of artificial intelligence and automation that are pushing the less educated working class out of work. How do you see that all playing out? Well, I'm... <laughs> I think what you say is right. The, the national security issue is a serious one. Though it had been deglobalization long before COVID, ever since the Great Recession, so this is sort of accelerating a trend. China is perhaps a little different from the rest of the world because relationships between China and the U.S. are deteriorating very rapidly. And so I'm sure that there's going to be some deglobalization, some disruption of supply chains, Maybe some jobs will come back here, but it's not clear they'll go back to less educated workers as opposed to robots. But there's one thing that worries me, and some people have been talking about this, like um, Penny Goldberg, who used to be at the World Bank and is now at Yale. You know, this is a pandemic. It's a very special situation. Normally, if you have a local event, you know, like a hurricane and an earthquake or something, you actually want multiple supply chains all around the world because people may be able to help you from lots of different places. And even in Europe, it seems like the Germans who were not so deeply affected by COVID were very effective at shipping PPE and, you know, medical equipment to Italy and to other countries. And so we certainly don't want to go into anything like autarky. I mean, that would be a real, and would make us less secure. I think security means multiple sources of supply, not bringing it all back home. So what your book describes somehow comes together with, for example, the work that Charles Murray has done on coming apart, on the, the great gulf that has opened up between the poor and the rich, between different classes and races, and the, the challenge there. And as we look at the death rate you know, increasing in this population, these deaths of despair going up, all of these 737s coming down, we see that more and more Americans are getting handouts. You know, 50% of Americans, by the calculations done by our scholars, are on some form of government assistance, some very minor, but some form of government assistance, which obviously is a huge cost to the budget, but is also, you know, takes away from their, their need to work in a very European like way. Now, people like Bernie Sanders and, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez look at this and they say, that's why we need nationalized health. That's why we need universal education. That's why we need to look more like what they think Sweden looks like, which it doesn't. And that doesn't seem to be your answer. What is the answer? There's a lot of questions. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, we, I looked up and we have like three minutes left and I thought, damn it, I'm going to get them all in there. <laughs> I'm not sure we want to look like Sweden with all its COVID deaths, for sure. 
Um, we're not in favor of constructing Swedish type. Actually, I don't think Swedish is a socialist society, but I don't think we, we're certainly not in favor of, uh, we don't think capitalism has failed in America. But there are parts of it that are working very, very badly. And a lot of things you talked about, I mean, you know, this healthcare costs are just devastating jobs for people. That's one of the reasons why so many of them are on government support. And it's a completely crazy system to finance. First of all, it's outrageous that it costs so much. The waste in healthcare is more than the total amount we spend on the military. So a lot of the budget problems in Washington, a lot of everything else would just go away if healthcare costs the same as it costs somewhere else. And we get a lot more people back into work. So that's one of the reasons we focus on healthcare, because that's a doable thing. And it's one of the things that's just making life so much worse for so many people and killing jobs. This is like, it's like a $10 increase in the minimum wage. Everybody talks about what a tire disaster that would be, or some don't, but there's a huge debate about that, but very little debate about the 10 bucks an hour that healthcare is costing workers. That's really interesting. Exit question from me. And, you know, one of the drivers of Donald Trump's election were the people who are the victims of the deaths of despair, working class community that basically said, you know, the politicians in both parties, the establishments of both parties are not listening to me. They're not hearing my suffering. They don't understand what I'm going through. And we're going to send a disruptor into Washington to shake things up on both sides. And that's happened. And you talk about how the deaths of despair are not linked to business cycles, which I'm sure is true. But they, these people have been caught in a wave in the last you know, eight years. Under the Obama administration, after the 2008 financial crisis, we lost something like 200,000 manufacturing jobs that left the country. And then Trump came in, elected by these people, and we have gained, before the pandemic, 500,000 manufacturing jobs for the first time after a long period of time. Wages for those people at the bottom of the spectrum were rising faster than for the rest of the country. And then the pandemic came in and just wiped out all that progress. What is that? It wasn't so great, though. The wages had risen. But if you take people without a four-year degree, they're still lower than they were any time during the 90s or sure. any time during the 80s and so on. But the trend had moved, was finally moving in the right direction after moving in the wrong direction. Well, I'm not sure, because if you look at that over the last 50 years, the trend is down and nothing that's happened in the last 10 years upsets that. We were just on an upswing from a terrible recession. So we'll never know the answer to that because we've got it? the pandemic. What does it do to this community to have been the, the, suffering oh, so much I, after that recession, then finally starting to seem like there was a light at the end of the tunnel and then the light is gone? I think it's worse than that, actually. I mean, I think the disrespect, the lack of dignity, the fact that we valorized the four-year BA over everything else while only a third of the population has a four-year BA, the fact that the Democratic Party gave up on the working class and became a coalition of minorities and the educated elite, while the Republican Party is largely seen as a party of business, where does that leave those people? That's two-thirds of the population. This trouble is not going to go away. And I think it's the COVID and the consequences, the long-term consequences of the COVID are going to make it much worse. And we've somehow got to change our education system so that it doesn't work for only the third of the population that go to college. We've got to restore dignity and work to people who don't go to college, as well as making it easier for more people to go to college. Absolutely fascinating. 
Sarangas, thank you so much. First of all, everybody, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism by Anne Case and Angus Deaton is out. It's really worth a good, solid read. I think everybody will find it, as you said, accessible and enlightening. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the chance. Well, that was a marvelous discussion. We but... never know why. He has a Nobel Prize and we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Among the many reasons we don't have a Nobel Prize, but that will be remedied soon. So one of the things that has stayed with me is this sort of weird European-American divide. Why is it that in Europe, where as best I can tell, nobody works? No, no, that's not fair. But lots and lots of people don't work. You know, in Spain, in, in Italy, in Greece, you have tons and tons and tons of people who are underemployed or unemployed or live in the gray economy, and they are not dying of despair. Is it just because they have nationalized health? I mean, it can't be the case in Italy because the health system there is an abomination. And if that's the case, how do we not become those countries? No, exactly. And it's interesting because when Sarangas lays out the causes for deaths of despair, their loss of work, loss of community, destruction of the family, marriage, falling apart, lack of religiosity, all those things. All those things are happening in Europe on steroids, right? You know, I mean, Europe is more secular than we are. They have lower fertility rates than we do. You know, so a lot of the drivers of, of deaths of despair here exist even more so in Europe, and yet they don't have the same rates that we do. They don't have the same drug addiction rates. I mean, not everywhere, although, as he noted, uh, in Scotland, that's starting to look very problematic. I don't know. You know what I ask myself is whether the great thing about being an American is also what's causing this, which is that at the end of the day, America is an unbelievably productive country. Americans you know, why are we here? We came here to get rid of the strictures of King George. We came to worship as we pleased. We came to work as we pleased. And the country has really been proud of its innovation, of its productivity. The reason we are the richest country in the world and have remained atop for close to a century is because of the American people. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you think about who came here, it was the people who looked at their condition and said, I'm going to get up and get on a ship and use all my savings to cross an ocean and risk it all on a dream and a place where I can work and the class restrictions to advancement aren't there and where the economic restrictions aren't there. So we got the cream of the crop in America. Our people, Americans want to work. Americans believe that work has dignity. And so I think that the loss of work is particularly devastating. And I don't know you can prove it scientifically or economically, but I, I feel like the loss of work in America is particularly humiliating. humiliating. And, you know, people want to have dignity. This is the problem I have with Democrat solution. You know, so they got a new COVID bill up that's never going to pass. The $3 trillion yeah, the $3 bill. $3 trillion. And it's got, you know, extended unemployment benefits till January. You know, right now we have stores that are trying to open up. They can't get workers because the unemployment is more generous than what they can offer. One of the big problems with the welfare state in this country is that it's reducing incentives for worth. Competing. Robert Doerr, our president, when he was we ran the welfare agency in New York City, one of the things that he really implemented was work requirements for welfare. That if you want that welfare is supposed to be a temporary help for you until you can get on your feet and get a job, because that ultimately that's where people find their happiness, their satisfaction in life is from working. 
No, it's funny. I, you, you reminded me of, of something that European friends always say to me, which is that Americans, when they meet each other, you know, how do you do? Da, 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 and their next question is, what do you do? Yes. Right? I mean, Because we're so true. wrapped up in our identity of what we do. And, you know, there's certainly room for lots and lots of other things, culture and, and you know, so much more and family and, and you know, everything. Yes. But it is very much a part of our national identity. And it's going to take a lot to change that. It is really interesting that the Democratic Party has become the party that defends the idea that this isn't a working man's nation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Democrats, one of the phrases that that really rankles me is, you know, well, these people are just in dead end jobs. Oh, it's yeah. Like, that's, the, you know, I, that's the quote I was looking for. I was looking for a quote while you yeah. were droning on about something. Like that. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. These, yeah. All of these people yeah. in dead end jobs. No you job. Need to is, ask me. No you didn't job. Need to look I, it up. You just I, need to ask me. Of course. My, yeah. my partisan quote machine. Yes, Mark exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, so there's no such thing as a dead end job. No, if you're bringing a paycheck home and you're supporting your family and you're, you're contributing to your community, you know, all the, a lot of the jobs that people on the left tend to dismiss as dead end jobs. Guess what? We're so grateful for those people today because they're the ones in the grocery stores who are working just behind that screen to make sure that we have all of our supplies. People who are picking up like your that. garbage. People who are picking up your garbage, people who are, you know, delivering your food, people who are, you know, producing the toilet paper. I hope maybe one side effect of this pandemic will be a renewed respect and just banishing forever this phrase, dead-end job. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly about that. It always reminds me of the beautiful story that Arthur Brooks told repeatedly, and I know if he's listening to this, he'll laugh too, about something called the Doe Fund in mm -hmm. New York, a wonderful um, organization that helps ex-felons find jobs. You know, he told the story of this one guy who, through the Doe Fund, had found work as an exterminator yes. and got this call from his boss saying, you know, I need you to come out and deal with, I don't know, an infestation of bed bugs. And, he's, and he turned to Arthur with joy on his face and said, nobody's ever said that to me before. I need you. Yeah. I It brings a tear to my head, even when I'm telling it, and I'm probably butchering it to no end. But oh, it, a... that is exactly right. People want to be needed, and they don't just want to be needed by their mom or their dad or their kids or their spouse or, you know, their pastor. They the want to be needed by their community. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I tell you, the longer we push these people out of work and to insist that they can't go to their jobs and that they're... And, and basically that we ignore and, their despair. And ignore their despair and basically tell them, no, we really don't need you uh, that much. You're not, your job is not essential. Right. You know what? Every job is essential. Every job is essential because it's essential to that person and it's essential to the community and it's essential to their families. And we've just got to stop treating these people like they're some sort of, you know, uneducated bums who don't who want to infect everybody. These people who are protesting are crying out and saying this lockdown is killing us and it's killing our families and it's killing our communities and we can't go on forever like this. And I think we need to listen to them instead of well, uh, I, dismissing I, them. I, we certainly need to respect their point of view. You may not agree with everything that you read in The Deaths of Despair by Anne Case and Angus Deaton, but you will certainly learn a lot. So we commend the book to you. It was really terrific having him on. And uh, we're looking forward to the day when you're listening to this podcast on your way back to work. Amen to that. Take care, everyone. Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. 
Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.